right, while everybody is taking their seat, we don't have any announcements for tonight. That's the announcement. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we begin tonight, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, which is uh, usual. It's our opportunity to make sure that we're spiritually prepared to study the Word. And of course, whenever we're studying the Word, that's an act of worship. Scripture says that we are to worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. Walking by the Spirit uses the same phraseology, so what we know is that if we need to be in right relationship with God, which is known as fellowship, which is a word that has to do with walking together, and so when we sin, we're no longer walking with the Lord. We need to confess sin, and instantly He forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're ready to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to. As the psalmist says so many times, you are our rock, you're our shield, you're our fortress, you're our high tower. You are the one who protects us and watches over us and guides and directs us. And even when we are in the midst of chaos around us, we can rest in you, we trust in you, we commit ourselves to you and to your care. And we know that whatever takes place, that it is your will. And therefore, we need to relax and handle it by trusting in you, and even if it takes us to the point of death. For we know that the instant we die, we're absent from the body and face-to-face with you. Father, we thank you so much for your word, the comfort it gives us, the insight it gives us into life, that when the scripture says that Uh, Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is not saying it illuminates our eyes, but it sheds light on the direction in which we go. So, Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight that we'll get insight into how to deal with the craziness of the world around us and have a certainty in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are studying on Judges on Tuesday night, and the theme in Judges is moral relativism and how it destroys a nation. So I ran across a couple of things today that I thought I would begin with by way of introduction, so you will know why we need to be studying this, as if you don't already understand that. And they're illustrations from from current events that show how far down the road this country, this culture of Western civilization has gone into the uh, 
tyranny of relativism, for that's what it is. I mean, if you think about it, you look out on the scene and you see those who are have completely given themselves over to the postmodern uh, relativism, and it, they have their own values. They have their own their own sense of right and wrong, and defining the term their terms their own way. And if you don't go along with it, then they tyrannize you, they cancel you, they reject you. It's their own form of legalism and self-righteousness. And so there is a tyranny to antinomianism. It's it's no longer freedom, live and let live. It is if you don't go along with my antinomian value system, then I'm going to stomp you out. So let me give you some things. This is the first thing I'm going to read to you is from an uh, article by Victor Davis Hanson, a lot of you read him, 10 Radical New Rules That Are Changing America, and see if you can understand why they are all the product of relativism. The first one is that money is a construct. Money is a construct. What that means is that money has no objective reality. It doesn't reflect any objective reality. It's all just a matter of what you think it is and what you what you impute to it. And you may impute one thing to it, somebody over here imputes something else. It's all purely relative. He says it can be created from thin air. Annual deficits and aggregate national debt no longer matter at all. See, there's no objective reality to money. He says uh, prior presidents ran up huge annual deficits, but at least there were some concessions that money was real and had to be paid back. Not anymore. Okay, the second one is that laws are not necessarily binding anymore. And uh, the president took an oath to uh, take care that the laws are faithfully executed. But he has, the current president has already uh, willfully ignored many immigration laws and they don't prosecute rioters for violation of uh, federal laws unless they're of a certain political uh, bent. It's all relative. We'll pick and choose what laws we're going to prosecute. Racialism is now acceptable. We're defined first by our ethnicity or our religion. If you don't know what that's called, that's called critical race theory. And it ha- it is a religion. Uh, at the p- pastor's conference that we had just a couple of months ago, six weeks ago, we had uh, Andy Woods gave a talk on critical race theory. And if you read in the literature, it is clearly a religious position. It is a worldview, and it is antithetical to a Christian worldview, to a biblical worldview, to a Judeo-Christian worldview. And a couple of the things that I have uh, from another source sort of emphasizes that. Uh, Fourth, he says, the immigrant is mostly preferable to the citizen. And I'm just going to give you the things and not read all about them. Number five, he says, most Americans should be treated as we would treat little children. Uh, They cannot be asked to provide an ID to vote. They are uh, given mandates as to where they can go and how they need to protect themselves in the midst of a pandemic. 
sixth, hypocrisy is passé, virtue signaling is alive. Virtue signaling is nothing more than saying, I'm, I am more righteous than you are. And it doesn't matter what my reality is, by doing this, that trumps whatever else I do, and I have shown you how righteous I am and you're not. Uh, seventh, ignoring or perpetuating homelessness is pre- preferable to ending it. There are ways to deal with it. Homeless tent cities are beginning to crop up all over Houston. Ten years ago, we had, or probably 15, 16 years ago, we had a mayor who cleaned it up. And now we, it's happening. I understand that in Austin, it is absolutely horrific. It looks like something out of Southern California. It's totally out of control in California, and the people we elect to office do absolutely nothing to deal with the situation. So that's all the result of moral relativism, and that is what leads to the collapse of a culture as we are studying in, um, in Judges. Another source comes up with... Um, has a, an email I get, and they put out a thing that says how that gives you how the the uh, the woke don't use the word woke. It's Marxist. It's all Marxist strategies. Uh, how the woke side is shifting the meaning of words, and you need to be aware of this as a believer. Don't get sucked in by affirming the validity of the their definitions. And I thought they did a good job on a couple of things. And one is that uh, the words diverse and diversity. A biblical definition would be a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages will be in heaven. That's Revelation 7, 9. That's what we used to mean by diversity. But that's not really what the woke Marxists are saying. What they are saying is it refers to all people with the exception of white people, especially male heterosexuals. Um, And you have a couple of examples from these are, uh, one is a seminary professor from Southern Seminary, which is the flagship Southern Baptist Seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. His name is Jarvis Williams, and he teaches in New Testament interpretation. And he says, quote, there are diverse Christians hurting because of their experiences of racism and because of the lack of the fruit of the Spirit. That's another term we'll look at, how they're defining that. In many race conversations, what he means is that non-white people, particularly non-straight white males, are the ones that are hurting. They, uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary has implemented a kingdom diversity program that grants scholarships to all people with the exception of white, straight males. And then another uh, spokesperson in some uh, denomination named Jamar Tisby says that desegregation doesn't say anything about how diverse people are included in decision-making. What he means is that it doesn't say anything about how non-white, particularly non-straight white males, are included in decision-making. So it, it's they're redefining these terms. The other thing they've redefined is fruit of the Spirit. 
The fruit of the Spirit is clearly defined in Galatians 5, to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against which there is no law. But the woke definition is that it means, number one, total submission on uh, from white people to the narrative of wokeness. See, if you don't go along with the narrative of this Marxism, you, you are by definition a racist. It, they changed the name, ter, the terminology for racism and no longer means somebody who has a pr- prejudice against people who are from a certain ethnicity. It has to do, if you don't buy into our narrative, our postmodern relativistic narrative, then you are by definition a racist because you don't agree with us. Doesn't, nothing else matters. And so that's how they're, you have to agree with them or that, because that's the fruit of the Spirit. And it just goes on and gives us uh, heartache to see things like this having a purchase in our culture. So we are studying in Judges. We have seen what happened at the beginning of the uh, conquest in chapter 1 after Joshua died. And as we went through Judges chapter 1, it is a rehearsal of the uh, conquest as the different tribes went into their different areas to uh, conquer the cities and the land that God had given to them. Uh, There is a progression of disobedience towards God that goes hand in hand with a progression in compromise with the culture surrounding them. So that at the beginning... You have the example, the longest section, dealing with the tribe of Judah as they go into their territory, and they have a tremendous victory, and they take the cities of Hebron, all the other major cities, and they establish themselves well in Judah. And then there's a progression, and one of the things we read is that there's a couple of tribes that uh, allowed Canaanites to settle in their midst, And then the last uh, two tribes, except for Dan, um, the last two tribes have to, they they settle with the Canaanites. So that by then, in those tribes uh, of of, uh, uh, Naphtali, and I forget the other one right now, but they are settling where the Canaanites remain the dominant culture. And then the last one that's mentioned is the tribe of Dan, and they're completely defeated by the Canaanites. And so we saw that the real issue there has nothing whatsoever to do with their ability to uh, devise the correct uh, strategies and tactics. It had nothing to do with the technology because some of the Canaanites had iron uh, the Philistines later have iron, so that they have great, better weapons. They're better organized. They have uh, military experience. None of those things are the factor. The factor is that the Israelites are compromising. First, they're disobeying God. They're compromising with the enemy, and then they're not trusting God. And that's the issue. It is trusting God and doing God's plan, God's way, that brings about, uh, brings about the victory. And then we saw at the uh, conclusion of that description, which is basically just a report on how the conquest went, 
Then they are confronted by the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ who goes by the identification of the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And we saw all the passages that demonstrate on the one hand that the angel of Yahweh is in a number of passages also just called Yahweh in those passages. So that means that the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh is a divine person. And then we looked at other passages, for example, in Zechariah 3, where the angel of Yahweh talks to Yahweh. So you have a different personage. He is speaking uh, to, it is the pre-incarnate Son of God speaking to God the Father. And so we saw that this is uh, the angel of the Lord now, and he confronts Israel with their disobedience in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, which we looked at last time. And there he is going to tell them what is going to happen as a consequence of their disobedience. So let's just back up a minute and remind ourselves of the structure of this book. In the first chapter, you have this summary overview that sets the tone for the book and that tells us what is going to happen in the book, the cycles of disobedience, deliverance, and then uh, defeat again. Uh, And that's uh, covered in this 11236, gives us the introduction, how Israel went from spiritual victory to being worse than the Canaanites. That's what happens in a culture when it divorces itself from God and the absolutes of God's word. Then we become like like the Canaanites, and that's what happens with Israel. So that by the time we get to the end of Judges, we realize that Israel's culture is worse than that of the Canaanites that they are replacing. We also see that uh, the, the factor here is incomplete obedience and compromise, and that leads to failure and to cycles of discipline that go throughout this book. The middle part is the, deal that, the section that deals with the paganization of the leadership, the judges. And we start off with Othniel, about whom nothing negative is said, and end with Samson, about whom nothing positive is said. And each one is more affected by the pagan culture of the Canaanites than the one before. It shows how this erodes over time and destroys the spiritual integrity of the nation. And then there are two, for lack of a better term, appendices or epilogues dealing with, first of all, the paganization of the priesthood and, second, the paganization of the people. So we're in the, this first section. We've gone through the first chapter, the first five verses of the second chapter. And then the second part is in some ways parallel to and uh, a, looking at the same events from one one to 2.5, but from a different perspective. And so as a result of the way the writer writes, remember in, in Jewish history writing in the Old Testament, they don't write history like the Greeks would write history later on and like Greco-Roman civilization from which we've descended will write history. They write it often thematically. And so it is not in this strict chronological order. 
and that helps to answer what seems like a rather uh, complicated chronological conundrum here where the first verse of Judges 1 uh, talks about after the death of Joshua it came to pass and that the events of chapter 1 are after the death of Joshua. But then when we come to um, chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 5, we see the confrontation that occurs chronologically at the end of the events of chapter 1, the compromise and defeats. And then we come to verse 6, and unfortunately in most... um, in most of your English translations, they have paragraphed this in an odd way and it creates a paragraph between 6 and 7 when the paragraph should be between 5 and 6. Because what the author is doing is he's coming back uh, and uh, he's having a flashback now to when Uh, before Joshua had died. And he's talking about when Joshua had dismissed the people. So wait a minute. I thought Joshua died in verse 1. Yes, he did. And we see from verse 1 down to 2, 5, we see the consequences, what happens after he dies. And then verse 6 is going to take us back actually to Joshua 24, which is when Joshua gives his farewell message to the Israelites before he dies. So we're going to have to look at Joshua 24 some tonight because that's actually what happens. They they get to this uh, meeting uh, at the place that will, they will call or nickname Bochim, the place of weeping. And then it looks in verse 6 like it's just leading on from verse 5, and actually it is not. It is picking up on the end of of Joshua 24 when Joshua dismisses the people. And then it goes on to describe uh, what happened in this time period. And it's looking at the same events of chapter 1, but from a slightly different different perspective. So we see in Judges 2.1, what we saw last time, the angel of Yahweh, who is Malach, Yahweh actually means the messenger of the Lord, Uh, the word Malach, as well as the Greek word angelos, refer to uh, a messenger, and yet yet angel is a transliteration of the Greek for whatever reason. Usually they're trying to avoid a conflict when they do that. And he comes up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, we don't know of a literal place called Bochim, most scholars think that this is near Bethel. Uh, others have suggested a couple of other places. We're not certain where that is. But why is the angel coming up from Gilgal? And we looked at that, and it goes back to what happened uh, in Joshua after the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. Then they immediately camped out at a place that was just on the eastern edge of Jericho. So here's the map. Here's the Dead Sea. Uh, this is the modern kingdom of Jordan, and this was uh, where the Ammonites were in the Old Testament, and they crossed the Jordan here. And so they camped somewhere on the northeast or eastern side of Jericho, and that is 
where Gilgal is located. And at Gilgal, they have to renew the covenant. And remember, the covenant of Abraham stipulated that all males had to be circumcised. And in, in the desert, in the wilderness, they weren't circumcised. And so the covenant people of God under the Abrahamic covenant are going to take the land that God promised to Abraham. Then we've got to get with it, and we've got to apply the uh, covenant, and all the men had to be uh, circumcised. So Joshua 5, 8, and 9 uh, describes that uh, is at the end of that and was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed and then the Lord said to Joshua this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you and Gul is the Hebrew word so Gilgal is the is a play on that word to roll away and that's why it was called what it was called and then God reminds them of what he has said, his promise to never break covenant with them. And then he says, but you you were told not to make any covenants with the inhabitants of the land and that you were to tear down the altars and you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? And whenever God says, asks that question in the Old Testament, he's making a point. Because God in his omniscience knows exactly what they've done. He's not asking them a question to get information. He's asking them a question to get them to think about what it is that they have done and, uh uh-oh, their consequences. It's like when my mother would say, we're just going to wait till your father comes home. You knew that you had done something wrong and whatever was going to follow was not going to be good. So God tells them what will happen, that now God is not going to give them complete victory over the inhabitants of the land as he had promised. He says, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they call it the place of weeping, which in Hebrew is bokim. But see, God is faithful. God is faithful to his word, and this is an expression of both God's righteousness as well as God's love. If you have been a parent, a grandparent, if you've been in any kind of a relationship like that, then you know that you don't let kids get away with whatever they want to get away with, not unless you want them to completely fall apart in life. There has to be uh, discipline and consequences, and it is best if it comes from a parent who is con- as consistent as a human parent can be and who lays down the rules, explains them, and uh, has the child experience the negative consequences of disobedience. That goes back to Genesis chapter 2, where God established the divine institution of human responsibility. In Genesis chapter 2, God told uh, Adam that, uh, that he could eat from all the tr- fruit of all the trees in the Garden of Eden. But if he ate from this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then instantly he would die. And it wasn't a physical death. It was a spiritual death because death has the main connotation in Scripture of separation. And there's uh, several different kinds of death in the Scripture. There's physical death. There is spiritual death, 
uh, as a Christian who is living uh, in rebellion against God. We call that sometimes carnal death or temporal death where they're separated from the power of God, the Holy Spirit working in their life. Uh, we see sexual death as applied to Abraham, that he was in his body he was dead when God made the promise that he and Sarah would have a son. So, and, uh, and then we have the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross where he paid our, the penalty for sin. He died in our place. So there are these different kinds of death in the Scripture, and we have to examine the context to see uh, what is being Uh, what is being talked about. But God was faithful. That was the point I made last time. We talked about God's faithfulness and that God was faithful to his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and brought the people into the land. And God was faithful in giving them victory over the Canaanites, but they were faithless. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight is that the people were faithless. But one promise I did not use last week, I concluded with it, but the one that we should all memorize is in Lamentations 3, 20 to 25, which focuses on the faithfulness of God. The circumstances surrounding the writing of Lamentations, which means an expression of, of grief and sorrow to lament something, is that Jeremiah, who was a prophet in Jerusalem at that time when the Babylonians finally uh, destroyed them, the third invasion in 586, they captured Jerusalem, they burned down the temple, completely destroyed it, and slaughtered uh, tens of thousands of Jews and then took the captives away and marched them back to uh, Babylon. And as Jeremiah is looking at the uh, ashes of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem, and he remembers everything. He said, my soul still remembers. He remembers the attacks, the siege. He remembers the cries of those who were being slaughtered by the Babylonians. And he's focusing on the horrors of what happened. We all go through different things, whether it's a loss of a job, loss of income, uh, death of a friend, death of a spouse, death of a, of a child, death of a friend, uh, all kinds of different things that we face in life. And they tend to get us down because we see, sense that things are out of control. And that's where, where Jeremiah is starting. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. But, he says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. What does he recall to mind? He recalls the absolutes of God's word. He recalls what God has said about his promises to Israel, that God is faithful and he will sustain them. And so he has hope. That is a confident expectation. Hope in the Bible is not the idea of an optimistic uh, wish, uh, but it's uncertain. Like, well, I want to go fishing tomorrow. I hope it doesn't rain. Or we're going to go camping out like with the men's camp out last week. I hope it doesn't rain, which there was ra- enough rain in the forecast to where we it did cancel Friday night, but we went out Saturday morning and had a good time. And so it's an optimistic wish, but the hope in the Bible is talking about a certainty, a certainty of a future expectation. It is a confident expectation. And so Jeremiah says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. 
They've just gone through the horrendous judgment of God for their disobedience, which if you read through a lot of theologies and listen to a lot of so-called pastors today, they will say, see, God in the Old Testament is such a harsh God. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But see, every time that God brings judgment, there's grace. It is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. His chesed love, we'll look at that word several times tonight. Chesed was a special word that's used in the scripture to, to describe covenant love, covenant loyalty. It's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated mercy. Uh, sometimes it's translated uh, gr- grace. Uh, this, these are all terms that emphasize the application of God's love, that even in the midst of his judgment, there's love. Just as when a parent must discipline children, there is still love, even though they may have to uh, spank a child, they may have to uh, discipline the child, take away privileges or other things that they really don't want to do. So through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. See, some people would say, well, you know, if God was really compassionate, he wouldn't have let those Babylonians go in and destroy uh, Jerusalem and take all those people captive. But God, who is omniscient and absolutely perfect, understands just exactly what has to be done in order to get the point across. And so... Uh, He is compassionate and merciful even in the midst of the horrors of the judgment. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is always faithful. And then he says, the Lord is my portion. That is, the Lord is my inheritance. The Lord is the one that is mine. Therefore, I hope in him. My hope isn't in the Babylonians. It's not in the economy. It's not in the doctors coming up with the vaccine. It's not in uh, the political, uh, the results of a political election. My hope is in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul that seeks him. So as we get into looking at this next section, and it's a long section, it goes from verse 6 down to chapter 3, verse 6. And then there's a break. Verse 7 introduces the first judge whose name is Othniel. And this, this, this section can be divided as follows. First of all, we see the end of the great generation. We all know that um, uh, that the World War II generation has been defined as the greatest generation. And I have said for many, many years, for the first time I heard it, I said, they did many wonderful things. They accomplished incredible things. They survived the Depression. They learned character in the things that they suffered in the Depression. They learned self-reliance. They learned how to do with very, very little so that they could fix any uh, mechanical problem in almost anything because they didn't have the money or the resources in many cases to uh, go out and hire a mechanic or to get somebody to uh, fix it for them. They had to, they had to uh, have the ingenuity and the initiative to solve it themselves. That paid off in the middle of World War II as these young men were scattered across the face of the earth defeating uh, several different enemies 
and they had to make do with what they had, and they had built that character to be able to handle it. They were a great generation. They went to war, and they defeated uh, the Nazis, the fascists of Italy, the, uh, the Japanese, and then they came home. And then they failed the test of prosperity. And they said, I don't want my children to ever go through this. So their children, my generation, the baby boomers, failed in many, many cases to learn character because their parents didn't want them to have a hard time. And that baby boom generation raised another generation that I know in my generation, most of my friends, and we lived in in homes that would be considered upper middle class in a neighborhood that was upper middle class and that we had fathers who worked, mothers that did not work. It was rare to have mothers that worked back in the 50s and the 60s because we had such a roaring economy and it wasn't destroyed by the uh, various policies that started mucking around with the economy, starting with uh, the price controls with Nixon and then going on into all the horrors of Jimmy Carter and the high interest rates. And that really radically changed the culture. But that's when the, the, the great generation failed because they failed to teach their children the values, the core values. They did it superficially. They tried, but it it failed. And the uh, 60s generation rebelled against authority. And they have, though there are many great people in the baby boom generation, the trend of the whole generation is not in an upward trajectory. So this is like what we see with Israel at this time. The great generation was the generation who had parents who failed. They wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt. They wanted to go back to the leeks and garlics in Egypt. They didn't have the capacity for freedom. And they whined and they rebelled for 40 years in the wilderness. And they blamed Moses for every failure instead of themselves because they were the ones who refused to go into the land when Joshua and Caleb came back and said, God's going to give it to us. He's already promised it. We're going to take it. They failed to learn all the lessons that they should have learned when they saw what God did in the ten plagues in Egypt and when their back was against the Red Sea and God parted the Red Sea. I I just cannot fathom this. How can a person who sees God part the Red Sea and lets two to three million people go through on dry land and then when the Egyptian chariot corps and their infantry gets gets within the walls of water and then are absolutely destroyed, wrecking the economy of Egypt for the next four or five hundred years? How in the world can you say, oh, God said do this. Nah, I don't want to do that. And then God led them with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day through the wilderness, provided them manna miraculously every single morning except for the Sabbath. And God took care of them, and their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out. Now, they didn't have the latest new fashions, and they didn't have new shoes and everything, but God sustained them. So for 40 years, they, their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes were fine, everything worked. God sustained them. And then that faithful generation uh, dies. Their leader, Joshua, dies, 
and then a new generation comes forward, and it's called a generation that doesn't know God. What that means is not what it means in modern evangelical slang. Modern evangelical slang goes up to somebody and says, do you know Jesus? Well, we've studied this phraseology in the New Testament that when Jesus is in the upper room after they've had the Seder meal with the, with the uh, disciples, he's talking to them and he says, I go, to a place, uh, I go to prepare a place for you and where I go, uh, you will come, you will meet me. And, and, and Peter said, well, where are you going, Lord? We don't know, so how do we get there? And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip says, well, show us the Father. And, and, and Jesus then says, Philip, how long have you been with me and you don't know me? Now, Philip is saved. The other 11 after Judas left, they're all saved. But he tells Philip he doesn't know him. So obviously knowing Jesus doesn't mean believing on him for salvation. It's not a synonym for being saved. It is, it's going beyond salvation to develop that relationship with Christ. And in the Old Testament, it's the same way. So they didn't know, they didn't know God this new generation. They hadn't seen God perform miracles. They hadn't seen the sustaining uh, work of God. And so they had a, a rather empty trust in God. And as a result of that, they are easily seduced by the paganism of the culture around them. And we could say that same pattern has taken place in our culture because we have seen uh, the generations that come up. In fact, today, if you talk to somebody who's been educated, uh, let's say they're 40 and under, and you tell them that this nation was founded on a Judeo-Christian worldview by solid, mature Christians for the most part, who got their ideas from the Bible, whether they were actually regenerated, justified believers or not is irrelevant. They got their ideas from people who understood the Bible. And that's, it goes back to John Locke. John Locke wrote more about the Bible than he wrote about politics and philosophy. And you had others like Isaac Newton. He's known because he discovers the law of gravity. And yet he wrote more, he's considered one of the greats in the founding of modern science, but he wrote more commentaries on the Bible than he wrote about science. These were all men who were, whose thinking was deeply shaped by the Bible. And so when you come to uh, the colonies in 1776, all of these men, John Hancock's father was the pastor, former pastor of the Lexington Church. You have uh, John Adams, who's a strong congregationalist. You had Washington, who's a, an Episcopal, and he has uh, a tremendous love of, uh, uh, of God, but he's a very private person. So he has a different way of talking about it. There's a great book called Sacred Fire that is written by, I think it's Peter Lilbeck, a former president of Westminster Theological Seminary. And it is well documented uh, because the 
left has been trying to destroy the sta- tear down the stature of of Washington since Washington died because he was really a man a truly a man of great integrity and all of these people understood uh, Madison was another trained in at uh, Princeton by uh, John Witherspoon and and many many others and then you had subsequent generations it just got worse and worse and worse and so now we have a generation that if you even try to tell them what actually happened historically and you know me I've gone back and I have read as much as I have time for writings by the founding fathers to document this to make sure this is not just what some historian says they said that this is what they said and yet you can't even talk to the current generation about what actually happened because they've rejected it and this is what happens with this next generation Israel chases after other gods the text puts it this way they abandon God and then they turn to these other gods of the Canaanites. And so the Lord carries out his threat against them that he is going to bring judgment on that, and that's where you get down into uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and we read about the anger of the Lord, which is just a a hyperbolic way of talking about the strictness and the severity of God's justice. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers and despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. Well, this is exactly what God said he would do in the covenant with Moses. In Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 29 and 30, God spells it out. If you disobey me, this is what's going to happen. Your economy is going to collapse. You're going to be uh, defeated by your enemies, and you're going to be overrun until you turn back to me. So the Lord carries that out, but Israel rejects and spurns the mercy of God, uh, and the nations, the Gentiles, uh, stay. And so they are going to uh, stay there. And this is what God ends up saying in verse 21. Notice he says, I will still... I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. This is a reiteration of what the angel of the Lord said back in chapter 2, verses verses 1 through 4. And then we come to the sad summary in chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 where they basically settle down and get all cozy with the enemy. And they accept their ideas, they accept their values, they accept their gods, and they worship them. So this is what we have in Judges 3, 5, and 6. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now these are all just sort of subgroups that even in ancient Near Eastern literature that we have found they still they would refer to this whole area as the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan, even though there are all these subgroups that are, are living there. So the children of Israel dwell among them. Who's, who's the dominant group in that phraseology? It's the Canaanites. It's not the Canaanites dwelling among the Israelites. It's the Israelites dwelling among the Canaanites, which is a violation of God's, uh, God's orders for them. 
And verse 6 says, And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So we look at this, and one of the things, as I alluded to earlier, that comes up a lot today, and as Christians, we often, because uh, I hear people who are solid Christians, they just they look at God's mandates to exterminate, annihilate, and destroy every man, woman, and child of the Canaanites, and they think, how can that be? That doesn't seem like a loving God. And as I've often said, sometimes we look at the wrong person. This is classic, uh, classic liberalism. We look at the criminal instead of the victim. And so we don't want to be too harsh in punishing the, the, the criminal. And there's no justice for the person who is the victim. So let's look at this a minute in terms of the character of God. In the essence of God, we have ten attributes. He is sovereign. He rules his creation. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the one who created all things. So he has a right as creator to rule his creation. He is perfect righteousness. Now, righteousness refers to refers to the, the, the standard of his character. Justice refers to the application of that standard to his creatures. And then he is also love. He is infinite love. We cannot imagine it. We sing a hymn. I think we might sing it this Sunday. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Think about the words in that hymn that what it is saying is that the love of Jesus is infinite. It's immeasurable. We can never grasp it or understand it. It is so profound. Uh, And it is just as much a part of God's character as his righteousness and his justice. But what happens is if we come to the unique creator God of the universe with our finite understanding of what righteousness, justice, and love are, then we're going to say, oh, well, that's just contradictory. How can a, how can a loving God uh, punish these Canaanites like this? How can that be? That, that, that's not righteous and uh, really, and it's not very loving, so this is not a loving God. This is what happened in the development of theological liberalism starting back in the, in the Enlightenment period in the 1600s and 1700s. And so people were creating their autonomous idea of what righteousness, justice, and love are, and then imposing that on the the Bible and the God of the Bible, rather than letting the God of the Bible tell us and show us and demonstrate for us what righteousness, justice, and love truly are. And the classic for demonstrating the love of God is that uh, John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. It's not that God loved the world so much or God, for God so loved the world. That word translated so is a word in, in, in the Greek that means in this manner. God loved, how did God love the world? He, this is how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. That's the same thing Paul says in different words in uh, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love toward us 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you have these two passages that are talking about the incredible love that God had for his creatures, that he sent his son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who said of his relationship to the Father that it is so close and so intimate, he said, I and the Father are one. And yet the Father sent him to enter into human history, to take on humanity, to live in the midst of sinners. Now remember in the Old Testament, you have all these pictures that run through from the, from the tabernacle later to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 of the holiness of God, his distinctiveness. The word holy has to do with being set apart, being unique, being distinct. It is not the idea of being righteous and just. We have those words, holy met, one of a kind, a unique, distinct God. He is, he said, I am the Lord alone. There is no other like me. Over and over again, that God says that throughout the scriptures. And so God defines what love is. And what that means is that God's, God demonstrates that love is doing the absolute best for the object of love. Now, there's a problem with that statement if you think about it. Because if you have two sinful human beings and they're looking at each other and one tells the other one that they love them, and they don't have any sense of biblical love, then they're just saying, I want to do the best for you, which asterisk is really what to follow my agenda and to do what I want you to do. But if you understand the definition that, that love is wanting the absolute best for the person, that value term best means that you understand what truly is the best for a person. And, the, and because we're not omniscient and we're not omnipotent, we really don't know what the best is for a person unless God tells us from his word. And it's only when we study God's word that we can come to understand what real love is. So when the scripture says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, we have a really concrete example of what love is. That love is not some sentimental feeling. It's not getting butterflies in your stomach. It's not getting aroused. It is the fact that you want to do the absolute best for, for the object of your love, and your wife is going to return that. That's why it's easy for her to submit, if, but she has to do it anyway, even when you're not loving. Justice and righteousness provide the integrity for love. Because love that is not structured according to the standards of absolute righteousness and justice is not a love worth having. And those three elements will become the key to understanding God. He is eternal life. There's no beginning. There's no end. He's, he's always existed and always will exist. He is existence itself. He is omniscient. He knows all things. There's nothing that escapes him. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't forget anything. He's always known everything. Almost, you use the word intuitively, he just knows it. He's omnipresent. He's present to every molecule in his creation all the time. He's omnipotent. There's nothing that he cannot do, to, uh, cannot do in the accomplishment of his plan. He is absolute truth. And he is unchangeable. That relates to his faithfulness. 
So we look at these uh, concepts here, that God is sovereign, he rules all things, he's eternal, he's omniscient and omnipotent. All of those things tell us that God is infinite in his power, infinite in his knowledge, and uh, infinite in his existence. But we look at these three attributes of God, his righteousness, his justice, his love, and we combine that with his veracity, his truth, and that's how we get to the integrity of God, that God is going to show us what love is. Love has something to do with providing that which is right and good for the object of love. Look at how the psalmist relates this. Psalm 9, 8, he shall judge the world in righteousness. So his judgment is done according to a perfect standard of right and wrong. It is not the the relativistic standard of the creature. It's not what the creature thinks social justice is, which is an oxymoron and and a contradiction in terms. Uh, It is absolute righteousness because only someone who is omniscient, who knows all things, can be truly righteous and uh, just in their judgments because nothing is hidden from his eyes. He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. There's nothing off about God's judgment. Psalm 11, 7 says, For the Lord Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. You just have a few of these passages. God is holy. God is love. God is just. God is righteous. That where you have these straight-up statements made in Scripture, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His character demands righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Uh, Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his of the goodness of the Lord. And that's really not a good translation of there because the Hebrew word is the word I mentioned earlier, chesed, which has to do with his faithful, loyal love, his covenant love, his, his faithfulness to his word. Uh, and all of that, it, it's sometimes translated mercy, sometimes it's translated loving kindness, but it has, there's no comparable term in English. And I love this verse, Psalm eighty-nine, fourteen: Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The found, the, this phrase, the foundation of your throne, is really an idiom for saying this is, this is what upholds everything about your rule. See, throne stands for his righteous rule over his creation. And so the foundation is that which upholds, that which undergirds his rule is uh, his throne. So righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And mercy, again, this is chesed, and truth go before your face. This is what you, how you express yourself to your creation is on the basis of mercy on the one hand and truth on the other hand. God does not lie. He is not a man that he lies or the son of man that he should uh, change his mind. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8 is a quote, has within it a quotation from Proverbs three eleven through 12 that helps define love. 
the, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of former Jewish priests, Levitical priests, who have become believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And so they are Christians, but because of the pressure that is coming upon uh, Israel, I mean, upon, yes, upon Israel and Judah from the Romans at this time, they're like, I don't know, I, maybe I'll go back to Judaism. And so a lot of Hebrews is written to tell them why they should not leave because Christ is superior to Moses. He's superior to the law. The cross is superior to all the sacrifices, all of those things. And so here as he's coming to a second section of admonition at the end of the epistle, the writer says, and, ha- and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. So he's going to apply Proverbs three eleven to 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't look at God's discipline or his judgment as something that is harsh, something that you don't deserve. Don't ridicule it. Don't, don't try to uh, uh, explain it away or something. He says, don't despise it nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Why? Because God knows everything, and so he knows exactly what each person needs in order to be brought back into line and to teach them what they need to learn in terms of their spiritual growth. He says, don't be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And that's true for every good, biblically-oriented parent whom you love, you chasten. Not because you're abusive, not because you hate them, not because you're mad at them, but because you want them to learn the difference between right and wrong and uh, the, that there are consequences to irresponsible and wrong behavior. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges, a very strong word. It is a word used to describe the flagellation with a cat of nine tails. Uh, scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. But what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. This is how it works in families, in training anybody. You go into the military, uh, you go through some harsh things in training to learn to do things the right way and not do them the wrong way because when you get into combat, it'll save your life. Same thing happens in school. Same thing happens in uh, sports or athletics or in music. You have to learn to be disciplined and do it the right way, and you only learn that by suffering consequences for violating the the rules. So when God comes to Israel and says, you're going to destroy the Canaanites, we have to remember that over 400 years earlier, God had said this to Abram. He said, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Now, what's the context here? The context is that uh, God is giving a covenant, a unilateral covenant, because God is, is the one who is committing himself to fulfill the obligations of the covenant, even if Abraham and his descendants do not. And he has promised them a land. And so along with this promise, he says, and this is what's going to happen. Your descendants are going to be taken away from here, and they will be 
they will be slaves for 400 years. And then they're going to come back. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites, that's the Canaanites, is not yet complete. God said, I've got to give them enough time to change their mind and turn back to me. And God gave them 400 years. Now, that's long-suffering. God didn't just say, oh, look at what you did. I'm going to wipe you out tomorrow. He waited 400 years, giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn to him. And finally, their, their, their sin, their iniquity reaches such a malignant level that in order to save the rest of mankind, he's got to wipe them out, just like we would go in in surgery and remove a malignant t- tumor. So all of that gets us to the beginning of Joshua 2, verse 6, and we'll come back next time and start there. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, be reminded of who you are, that you have a plan in history, and that plan is governed by your perfect righteousness. You know exactly the right thing to do every time by your justice, which is the application of that absolute standard of rightness. And it is always in total conjunction with your love that the three work together always. There's no contradiction or conflict between them. And, Father, the greatest example we have of this is the cross because there Christ died for our sins. You gave him as a demonstration of love, but it also is a demonstration of your righteousness and justice for his death satisfied your righteousness Your justice was able to pour out our sin penalty on him so that we could have everlasting life. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand and perceive what is going on around us in our culture as it is in free fall because of the tyranny of antinomianism, the tyranny of moral relativism, and that those those antinomians will hate are those who stand for the truth because those who stand for God are always those who are attacked. And, Father, we need to have the spiritual courage to stand true and stand strong on the basis of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.